You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name's Adam, and I'm reading from God's Word this afternoon. If you have a Pew Bible, um, it's on page 613, and we're reading uh, all of Daniel chapter 2 together. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh degree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. 
I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions in days to come, your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a freshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a king that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. 
It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself, itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the providence of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is God's word. We're back a touch. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm not sure if there's anyone new here, uh, but my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. On the topic of the pastors here at DPC, uh, if you're wondering, oh, where is Adam Humphreys? He's one of our pastors. The, the Humphreys have had a, a positive COVID test in their house just this morning, and so they're not able to come because they all had, uh, you know, the you know PCR thing, and they're waiting for results. So that explains uh, why they're not here, but please do remember them in your prayers, and no doubt they're tuning in online at home. Uh, please have Daniel chapter 2 open, uh, and if, there's a, if you're an outline type person, there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card, uh, you can f- uh, follow along with that. Uh, but aside from that, let's pray uh, before we look at God's word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together this afternoon, to look at your word together. And we just ask, Father, that you would give us humble hearts and minds, uh, that you would help me to be faithful and clear as I unpack this text And we pray that in particular our eyes would be open to the glorious wonders of your king and your kingdom. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, next Saturday, uh, Australians are heading to the polls again in the federal election. Uh, It's like grand final day. Uh, for our friend uh, here at DPC, Adam Foster. Uh, And so uh, it's a very exciting day, uh, election day. Uh, But we might, as we think about this day, we might think, what can we realistically expect of our Prime Minister and his government? I say his in this instance because the two candidates are men. But what can we realistically expect of our Prime Minister and their government? And I think the answer to that question is, well, we can expect basically what we'd expect of human beings in general. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, the French mathematician, said that human beings are the glory and garbage of the universe. That just about sums it up. Like, human beings are a mixed bag. And that's what we can expect from our Prime Minister and their government, whoever it might be after next Saturday. We can expect them sometimes uh, to do things, to behave in a way, to govern in a way that really does reflect God's glory, and to govern in a way that promotes truth, that's in line with God's truth, to govern in a way that that brings peace, 
together in a way that brings blessing. This is human government at its best. On the other hand, sometimes we can expect them to do uh, things that, frankly, we might think are just a bit of rubbish, (laughs) a bit of garbage. And they govern in a way that seems to be full of lies and deception rather than a, a passion for the truth, let alone God's truth. When they govern in a way that seems to promote more division and dissension and conflict than it does peace. When they govern in a way that brings poverty and burdens and cursing rather than blessing. What can we realistically expect from our Prime Minister and his government? Daniel chapter 2 asks a similar question. What can we realistically expect from human kings and kingdoms? And the answer's not that much different. We can expect them to be a mixed bag. Sometimes doing good things, sometimes doing bad things, sometimes doing glorious things, and sometimes doing things that are frankly just garbage in God's eyes. But the wonderful news of Daniel chapter 2 is that one day the stone of God's kingdom, that's the image in the passage, the stone of God's kingdom is going to defeat all the garbage of human kingdoms and become a mountain that is going to bring truth, peace and blessing to the world. That's my summary of the chapter. The stone of God's kingdom is one day going to defeat all human kingdoms and become a mountain that will bring truth, peace and blessing to the world. So let's take a look at Daniel 2. You can see if you think that's a reasonable summary. So first of all, look at verses 1 to 13. We're going to start at verse 1, but in these verses, uh, we see that the wise men of Babylon can't tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is or what it means. That's the key idea here. So look in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar's in a place that lots of us have been in before. He's had a dream or a series of dreams uh, that have disturbed him so much that he can't sleep. I'm sure you've had a dream like this before. Our kids have these dreams, you know, they come belting down the passage. Uh, Charlie's a classic for this, actually. He come belting down the passage. And sometimes Gabby and I joke that one day there's going to be like a Charlie-shaped hole in our bedroom door. Anyway, because he seems to be coming so fast down the passage. But, you know, you have a dream that disturbs you so much that you can't get back to sleep, not just that night, but the next night you're thinking, is the dream going to come back? I hope not. But that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is like. Uh, so in verse 2, he calls together all the wise men of Babylon. Now they're summarised there as the astrologers, the enchanters, the sorcerers and uh, the magicians and so on. Uh, these are the ones that Nebuchadnezzar thinks they might be able to tell him what his dream was and what it means. Astrologers, uh, who might they be? Uh, they're people much like astrologers today, right? Who think that you might be able to determine someone's destiny by looking at the patterns of the stars, by reading their horoscope, as it were. That's what we see today. These guys weren't that much different. Uh, Sorcerers, they're people who uh, wanted to communicate with and perhaps get some sort of spiritual insight from the spirits of people who had died. Uh, Magicians and enchanters were people who wanted to tap into the powers of the dark spiritual powers that were behind the Babylonian gods. They sought to use those and manipulate those. And much like the magicians, you might remember, in the court of Pharaoh, back in the book of Exodus, who were able, with their sort of spiritual powers, to perform lots of the same miracles that Moses was able to. 
that's these magicians and enchanters. They're not so much into card tricks and illusions and rabbits out of hats, uh, but into manipulating evil spiritual forces. So Nebuchadnezzar calls all these people together. He wants them to tell him what his dream is and what it means. Uh, And you'll see there in verse 4 that they're really confident that they'll be able to do it. Uh, May the king live forever, they say. Uh, Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. So they're pretty confident. But but then in verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar does something pretty surprising, doesn't he? I I don't know if you noticed it. What does he say? This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses are turned into piles of rubble. Notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just tell them the dream and get them to interpret it. He says, you've got to be able to tell me the dream and interpret it. Why does he do that? Well, if you've got the chapter open, look down at the end of verse 9. I think it explains what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. The end of verse 9, and Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, tell me the dream and then I will know uh, that you can interpret it for me. What's he saying? He's saying to interpret my dream is going to take a degree of supernatural insight. And how do I know that you've got the supernatural insight to get an accurate interpretation of my dream? Well, the one measure I've got up my sleeve is I'm going to demand that you tell me what the dream was in the first place. If you don't have insight into what my dream was, I don't trust your interpretation of the dream at all. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. And he says, if you can't do this, both of these things, then I'm going to be absolutely ruthless. Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute tyrant, wasn't he? Like, he's going to kind of completely dismember their bodies, cutting them to pieces, and completely destroy their homes, turning them into piles of rubble. Now, of course, that's excessively violent and over the top and... You know, maybe he should just be a bit emotionally mature and get over his dreams, like the rest of us, and not going, you know, going about killing people and stuff. But it does tell us how much the dream has disturbed Nebuchadnezzar. He's desperate to know what it means. So in verse 6, uh, we see the flip side, right? The punishment for not telling his dream is really severe. But verse 6, the rewards for being able to tell him his dream and interpret it are equally lavish, equally over the top. They'll be handsomely rewarded. But there's a problem for the wise men, right? They know that what the king's asking, well, it's basically impossible. So what can they do? Well, all they can do is stall a bit. So they have another crack at getting the king to tell them what uh, his dream was in verse 7. But you'll notice in verse 8 that Nebuchadnezzar, he can see right through their plan. He says, I know, you're just trying to gain time. You know, I'm just stalling uh, to try and, you know, wait and see if we can come up with a different plan. So Nebuchadnezzar doubles down, verse 9. If you don't, if you can't tell me what my dream was and what it means... Uh, then I'll assume, Nebuchadnezzar says, that you're just kind of conspiring together to spin some lies to me. It's not an accurate interpretation. It's just some misleading and wicked information. Uh, So in verses 10 and 11, the wise men come clean. They're finally honest about their inability. 
about the limitations of their knowledge. In fact, they tell Nebuchadnezzar to his face, in his courts, that what he's asking is completely unreasonable. Notice that in verse 10. Uh, there is no one on earth can do what the king are, that can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks uh, is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, uh, and they do not live among humans. You see, the wise men who are, in a sense, supposed to represent the Babylonian gods, they're saying no human being is capable of revealing the mystery of the king's dream. Only the gods could do that, maybe. But clearly at this point, either the, the Babylonian gods are unwilling to do it or they can't do it. I don't know which it is. But they're not able to reveal the dream to Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's already disturbed by the dream. He's in a pretty angry mood. Now his wise men have publicly insulted him as being unreasonable in his courts. Uh, that doesn't go down too well, does it? Uh, and so in verses 12 and 13, he follows through on his threat. Remember at verse 5, he said, I'm going to cut you to pieces. You're going to be executed. In verses 12 and 13, he says, execute all the wise men in Babylon. So, I mean, Daniel 1 to 6 are all great short stories. That's why I got uh, Adam to read the whole thing, even though it's a pretty long passage. But it's a great short story. And at the end of verse 13, like all short stories, we reach the crisis point. A problem is introduced. Right? Who are among the graduates of the University of Babylon? Who are among the wise men of Babylon? It's Daniel and his friends. We saw that last week. And so at the end of verse 13, where we're thinking, what is the fate of Daniel and his friends? Crisis point. How is it going to be resolved? Before we move on to that, though, I did just want to say a couple of things about what verses 1 to 13 teach us about human wisdom in comparison to God's wisdom. Human wisdom in comparison to God's wisdom. And that is that human wisdom is good, but it's always limited it's good, but limited. Because even the most wise people in the world, the most knowledgeable and skilled people in the world, uh, there are, for them, there are areas of wisdom and understanding that are beyond the limits of their understanding. Most of their understanding is good, but it's limited. It's good to remember that. There are certain questions that only the God who made us can reveal to, the answers to us. Like, what is the meaning and purpose of human existence? And what really is the past if you really want to flourish and be free as a human being? What is actually going to happen when we die? Right, these are questions that we can't just answer in our own limited human wisdom and understanding. They're questions that the God who made us must reveal to us. And we, we do well to remember this, I think. It's one of the things that reminds us that God is God and we are not. Our wisdom and understanding and knowledge as human beings is limited. It's partial. It's not comprehensive. I've got to remind myself of this. Often I find myself looking at the lives of other people and I slip into proudly thinking it's my right to judge and critique their decisions. Where does that come from? It comes from an assumption that I know everything. 
I know their life better than they know it themselves and I would have done something better or different if I was in their shoes. The truth is, I know very little about their life. My understanding is limited. And so I should humbly assume that I don't know everything. I should come in a posture of humility and seek to get to know them and learn their story. Likewise, God expects us to approach him with that sort of humility and to admit that we don't know everything, that he's God and we are not. And that our wisdom is good and we're to thank God for all the wonders of uh, human wisdom and understanding, but humbly admit that there's stuff beyond our wisdom and understanding. Anyway, verses 14 to 23 then. Uh, we see uh, that the all-wise God of heaven is not limited at all, but he can reveal the king's dream and what it means. As so take a look in verse 14. Uh, Arioch, the commander of the king's court, uh, goes out to where he's going to put to death the wise men of Babylon, and Daniel speaks to him with wisdom and tact. Uh, that, that's a good note to self. Uh, if you're ever speaking to the person responsible for executing you, uh, it's good to be polite. Right? Wisdom and tact when speaking to your executioner. And that's not the main point of the passage, but perhaps, you know, file it away for uh, one day. Anyway, uh, in verse 15, uh, Daniel asked Arioch, well, what's going on with the king? Why did he issue such a harsh decree? Arioch must have explained to Daniel what was going on. And immediately, Daniel seems to be confident that his God can deliver, that his God can save them. So notice in verse 16, Daniel goes into the presence of the king and he says, please stay our execution for just at least a few days. Give me a chance to pray to my God to see if he'll reveal the mystery of your dream. Nebuchadnezzar must have agreed because Daniel goes back to his house, he explains the whole situation to his friends in verse 17 and he urges them in verse 18 to join him in pleading to God, pleading that God in his mercy would reveal the mystery of the dream. You can imagine them in their rooms in Babylon, uh, praying away for hours and hours, uh, thinking that our, our life hangs on this. And in verse 19, uh, we read that the God of heaven answers their prayer. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So you see the contrast, right? The, the God, Daniel's God, the God of Israel is able to reveal hidden mysteries uh, that the wise men of Babylon can't reveal and that the gods of Babylon can't reveal. Only the one true God of Israel knows it and can reveal it. That's worthy of praise, Right? That's a God worthy of praise. So that's what Daniel does in verse 19. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Right? Daniel understands that his God is a God who's worthy of praise, not just today, but every day for all eternity. Praise be to God forever and ever. Praise be to the name of God. The name of God being the fullness of just the wonderfulness of who he is. His beauty, his glory, his majesty. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever, Daniel says. Uh, in particular, praise be to him, uh, you'll see, because wisdom and power are his. 
Right? God's wisdom is seen in this specific incident uh, in his ability to understand the mystery of King Nebuchadnezzar, to reveal the mystery of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and his power is seen in his sovereign control of every part of his creation, including Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, you see. It's no accident that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. That's a part of God's sovereign power and control over his world. Wisdom and power are his. In verse 21, Daniel reflects more on God's power. Notice that. He says it's God who changes times and seasons, who deposes kings and raises up others. Right? None of this is random. Every change from summer to autumn, from autumn to winter, happens under the sovereign control of God. It's his sovereign and powerful hand at work. If there's a change of prime minister next Saturday, it's not by accident. Our God is sovereignly in control of the, change, uh, the changes of every government. He deposes kings and he raises up others. Uh, he's worthy of praise for his power and he's worthy of praise for his wisdom. Notice Daniel says, uh, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge uh, to the discerning. This wisdom and knowledge isn't just stuff that we can get ourselves by reading a bunch more books and studying hard and getting more letters after our name. This is wisdom that is a gift from God. It's like the wisdom that Daniel and his friends received in Daniel chapter 1. Remember, God gave them special wisdom and understanding that made them stand out from all the other students at the University of Babylon. God gave them that wisdom. It was a gift from his sovereign hand. Now, that's what Daniel's talking about here. Uh, the precious gift of wisdom from God. Indeed, James chapter 1 urges us, uh, if we lack wisdom, uh, to ask God who gives without finding fault. Right? God is a giver of wisdom. Uh, and verse 22 tells us that the God can give this wisdom. Why? Uh, because uh, he can reveal deep and hidden mysteries, deep and hidden things. Right? Things that are beyond the limits of our human wisdom and understanding, God knows and can reveal them to us. Uh, because, as Daniel says, God knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. So we touched on this earlier, but we've got to admit as human beings, part of being human uh, is that we're illimited uh, and there are plenty of things that we're just in the dark about. We don't know. We're not as enlightened as we think we are. Right? That's what uh, Daniel's saying here in part. God knows what lies in darkness. Right? We might be in the dark about some stuff, but God is not. The light of God's wisdom and understanding extends everywhere. He's the one who knows everything, not us. And that's particularly hard for us to understand, I think, because uh, you might have heard the phrase before, we are children of the Enlightenment. What's the Enlightenment? It's that historical movement in the 17th and 18th centuries in particular, uh, which was basically saying human wisdom and knowledge is expanding and progressing so rapidly that we're emerging from that other historical period that was called the Dark Ages, Right? We're no longer in the dark about anything. We are enlightened. 
So we're all children of the Enlightenment. Our basic assumption is that we know everything and if we don't know it yet, we will know it because we've got scientists on the case. Right? But then we come up against things that we don't know. Like how to so solve a global pandemic. Like we can come up with a vaccine to help us to live with it, but we can't get rid of viruses altogether. There's still stuff that we're in the dark about. Our wisdom and knowledge doesn't extend everywhere. Yes, science, technology, wonderful things. Human wisdom is good and to be thankful for, but it's limited. There are areas of wisdom and knowledge that only the light of God's wisdom and understanding extends to. Anyway. And you notice in verse 23 that Daniel's prayer ends. It's, it's a much more personal ending. I thank God. He says, I thank and praise you, a God of my ancestors. You see how personal it is? Daniel knows he's not just praying to a God who's distant and indifferent, uh, impersonal God. He's praying to his God. He's praying to the God of his people, the God of his ancestors, the God who bound himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to the people of Israel, by making particular promises to them, promises to bless them. And so that's why God is particularly attentive to the prayers of Daniel and his friends. But he's looking out for them. He's revealed the mystery of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to save them and also to save the other Babylonian wise men who don't want a bar of Daniel's God, but that's just a sign of how merciful and gracious God is. His overflowing grace, not just, he doesn't just work out a way, we'll see in the end, to save Daniel and his friends, but all the Babylonian wise men. Anyway, uh, let's look at verses... Uh, uh, the next section, uh, verses 24 to 30, where Daniel's actually able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is and what it means, because the God who re reveals mysteries has shown him. In verse 24, Daniel goes back to uh, Arioch. Remember, he's the court official responsible for executing the wise men. Uh, in, Ar in verse 25, Arioch takes Daniel into the king's presence. Uh, notice Arioch, uh, maybe he's over-inflating his contribution here. Verse 25, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah uh, who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, the reality is Arioch's done nothing. Uh, Daniel found him, and Daniel's God has revealed the dream, but Arioch, you know, maybe trying to get in the king's good books, uh, he says, I have found this man. Anyway, verse 26, the king says to Daniel, well, tell me, tell me the interpretation. And what does Daniel say? Instead of simply saying, yes, I can tell you what your dream means, look at verse 27. Daniel says, no wise man, enchanter, a magician, diviner or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. Now, just imagine for a second that you're in Arioch's position. Right? He's put his neck on the line. He said, we don't need to execute the wise men of Babylon because I've found the one who can tell you what your dream's about. Then the king says to Daniel, what's my dream about? Daniel says, no one can tell you that. Right? He must have been thinking, what on earth are you talking about? You just told me that you knew. But what's Daniel's concern? His concern is that God gets all the credit, not him. 
He says, no wise human being, no person can tell you the dream. But verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar uh, what will happen in days to come. Again, there are limits to human wisdom understanding, but there is a God in heaven who can reveal the mystery of the king's dream and what it means. What it means about what events are to come, the future. Uh, Daniel essentially repeats that in verses 29 and 30. Uh, He says to, to King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, that in his dream, God, the revealer of mysteries, has shown him about future events. And in in the vision that Daniel's received, uh, God has shown Daniel the meaning of those events, the meaning of his vision. So in verses 31 to 45, we get to the kind of guts of the passage where Daniel finally, we finally hear what King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is and we finally hear what it means. So in many ways, all that's kind of introduction. Take a look in verses 31 to 35. This is the content of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In verse 31, in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a massive, awesome statue towering uh, in his vision. Uh, The head of the statue uh, is made of pure gold uh, and its chest and arms are made of silver. Gold and silver, they're there kind of symbolic of all, what it, all that is precious and majestic about human kings and kingdoms. And then you see that the belly and the uh, thighs of the statue are made of bronze uh, and its legs are made of iron. Bronze and iron, they're symbols of strength and power, particularly mi- military power. So this awesome statue is supposed to embody all that is strong and powerful and majestic and precious about human kings and kingdoms. But there's a problem, isn't there? Take a look there. Uh, Its feet are made partly of clay. So you've got this massive statue that, that seems to be kind of impregnable. It seems strong and powerful, like it will never fall apart. And yet at its foundation, the the, the part that's supposed to be holding the whole thing up, it's incredibly weak. Its feet are made of clay. And then Nebuchadnezzar's dream gets even more crazy. I don't know if he was doing some kind of ancient LSD, but no, this is a dream from God. But like his dream is pretty wacky, isn't it? Right here, he sees a stone, a small stone, a small rock being cut out. And we're told here that it's not cut out by human hands. I think it's in verse 45. I don't have the full passage in front of me just here. But it says that it was cut out of a mountain. So this small stone that's cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, maybe by God. We'll get to that in a bit. But this small stone is cut out and it smashes the statue at its weakest point. Uh, The feet that are made of clay. Uh, And notice what happens to this statue that represents human kings and kingdoms. Uh, It collapses to the ground in a pile of rubble. uh, And then it's transformed into chaff from the wheat threshing floor. What's the chaff? It's the waste from the wheat harvest that just gets blown away in the wind, never to be remembered again. This is a picture. This is the content of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, In contrast, the small stone that struck the statue, what happens to that? It grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes a mountain 
that fills the entire earth. So that's that's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then Daniel tells him, well, this is what it means, verses 36 to 44. First, in verses 36 to 38, he says, the head of pure gold, Nebuchadnezzar, represents your kingdom in all its glory. Because at this point, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, they tower over all the kings and kingdoms of the world like the head towers over the statue. It's a wonderful picture of Nebuchadnezzar's glory. But in verse 37, Daniel says uh, that even... Uh, excuse me, uh, that even though in human terms you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar is king of kings, uh, the reality is that any power he's been given has been given to him by God. The God of heaven who is the ultimate king of kings. It's God, verse 38, uh, you see there, who's made King Nebuchadnezzar ruler over all, but not forever. Notice verse 39. Despite the greatness and glory of his kingdom, after you, Daniel says, another kingdom will come along. Even the greatest of human kingdoms won't last forever. After you, another kingdom uh, will arise uh, inferior to yours. This is the silver on the statue. It probably represents the Medo-Persian Empire. We'll hear a bit more about them later in Daniel. Uh, But they're the empire that ultimately conquered the Babylonians. That's the silver. And next, there's a third kingdom of bronze, which probably represents the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And then you've got the fourth kingdom of iron, which is the Roman empire that overthrew the Greek empire. And incidentally, it's the Roman empire with all its brutal power that was in power, in control, uh, when Jesus was born. But even the Roman Empire, in all its power, look at verse 41. Even the Roman Empire has hidden weaknesses because it's a divided kingdom. A kingdom, look in verse 42, that is partly strong but partly brittle. Hidden weaknesses from division, verse 43. uh, The divisions in the kingdom will ultimately lead the entire Roman Empire to collapse, which is, of course, what happened. So what's God doing while all these human kings and kingdoms are in power? What's he up to? Verse 44. In the time of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will will it be left to another people. This is the stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. It's the stone of God's kingdom, the stone that struck the feet of the massive statue, the clay feet. So as verse 44 says, it's this stone that will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. So the kings and kingdoms of the world will be like chaff, here for a time, but then blown away in the wind, never to be remembered again. Uh, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. And so from one perspective, the uh, kind of picture in Daniel chapter 2 of how God's kingdom is going to be established, it's a pretty brutal one, isn't it? 
You've got this stone that just smashes the other kingdoms. It can feel a little bit brutal. But in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah picks up uh, this picture of the mountain of God's kingdom that fills the whole earth. Uh, It picks it up in a really positive way. If you've got a Bible and you know where Isaiah is, you can flick to the book of Isaiah or you can look it up in the index if you're not sure, uh, to Isaiah chapter 2. We're just going to look briefly at verses 2 to 5. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple uh, will be established as the highest of the mountains. Uh, It will be exalted above the hills uh, and all the nations will stream to it. So you see that this is the mountain that fills the entire world from Daniel chapter 2, the mountain of God's kingdom uh, that comes from the stone of God's kingdom. And what's going to be the impact of this mountain of God's kingdom on the world? Well, look in verse 3. We see that the mountain of the God's kingdom brings the truth of God's word to the world. Uh, verse 3, many people will say, uh, will come and say, come, let us go up, uh, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Uh, to the temple of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways uh, so that we may walk in his paths. Uh, The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, So when you become disillusioned or you despair at the lies or deceit that you feel like you hear from human kings and kingdoms, you remember that one day the entire world will be filled with the truth of God's word as his word goes out from the mountain of the Lord. That's verse 3. Verse 4, Isaiah describes how God is going to settle all the disputes among every nation and he's going to bring such peace and harmony between every person, every nation on the planet uh, that all the nations are going to turn their weapons of war into farming tools. That's verse 4. So when you're sick and tired of human kings and kingdoms that seem to be on about promoting conflict and division and war and hostility at all costs, you long for the mountain of God's kingdom that fills the earth, that will bring peace and harmony and healing to all. Finally, verse 5, that the mountain of God's kingdom will bring blessing to the entire world. Why? Why? Because the nations say there in verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As Habakkuk says, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. God made us to live and thrive as human beings, to flourish as human beings, walking in the glorious light of his presence. And that's what will happen when the mountain of the Lord fills the entire earth. All the nations of the world will walk in the light of the world and experience the life of the Lord and experience the life and blessing that comes from that. Of course, for the mountain of God's kingdom to fill the earth, the kingdoms of human beings have to be defeated. That's the focus of Daniel 2. But the mountain of God's kingdom filling the earth is a wonderful thing to be thankful for. So how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? We don't have time to look at verses 46 to 49 in detail. In short, Nebuchadnezzar, who did think he was proud and arrogant and was interested in exalting himself, but what does he do? He falls down prostrate before Daniel in a posture of humility and service. So he kind of yep falls down, makes himself low, and then he lifts up 
Daniel and his friends and Daniel's God. That's my summary of those verses. Uh, You can ask me about more details later uh, if you want to know more. So what's Daniel 2 about? It's all about human wisdom versus God's wisdom. It's all about human kingdoms versus God's kingdom. It's about the stone, uh, the statue that's defeated by the stone, and the stone that becomes a mountain. Those are a few of the, the contrasts in the passage. And, of course, this stone that becomes a mountain uh, doesn't just point us towards the establishment of God's kingdom. It also points us towards the establishment of Jesus as God's king. Uh, Who is the stone that is cut out not by human hands? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the one whose miraculous virgin birth meant that he was conceived and born not by human hands, not by the will of human beings. That's very clear. He's born, he's cut out, he's crafted, specially by God, not by human hands. And even though Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone, the one that has been cut out, uh, Jesus says of himself in uh, Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 42, Matthew 21, verse 42, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Notice the Lord has done this. The Lord has cut out Jesus, as it were. Uh, He has made him the cornerstone of his people. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. But then, verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone, that is, falls on him, will be broken to pieces. Matthew 21, verse 44. Uh, And anyone... Uh, excuse me, uh, and anyone who, uh, yeah, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Uh, anyone on whom this stone falls will be crushed. Why Jesus is saying, I am the stone of God's kingdom. If you stumble over Jesus rather than believing in Jesus, in the end, you'll be broken to pieces. Hard picture. If you reject Jesus rather than following Jesus, in the end, you'll be crushed. That's what Jesus is saying. But he's also saying that if you humbly come to him and choose to build your life about you know, notice Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected. He's saying every person on the planet is building a life for themselves. Most of the builders reject Jesus as the cornerstone. But if you humbly come to Jesus and don't reject him and choose to build your life around him, then you get to be a part of the stone that grows to become a massive mountain that fills the earth and brings you the truth and peace and blessing that you've always longed for. So what does Daniel chapter 2 teach us as we approach a federal election next Saturday? Well, it teaches us to have realistic expectations of our Prime Minister and their government. They're going to be a mixed bag. It also teaches teaches us to long for Jesus, our King, and for the stone of his kingdom to become a mountain that fills the earth and that brings us the truth, the peace and the blessing to the entire world, not just to our lives, but to the entire world. Let's long for this. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for... Yeah, we thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus...
uh, that he is indeed the stone of your kingdom uh, who will one day become a mountain that fills the entire earth uh, that brings truth and peace and blessing to all who have humbly come to him and chosen to build their, li- build their lives around him. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen.